All right, please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. The title to our message this morning is The Lord Will Fight for You. As you're turning there, please remember that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Exodus 14, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-ha-heroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pi-Haharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit, for Christ's sake, would fight for us now. You would free us from all distraction, that you would free us from all worry, that you would free us from anything that the other six days of the week would cause our attention to be drawn away to. Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to know and love you that we would know the hope to which we've been called to. We pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 
All right, you may be seated. Last time that we were together, a theophany, a divine appearance, arrived on the scene in the wilderness. Christ in the fire cloud. Paul tells us this was Christ in 1 Corinthians 10.4, that it was Christ who accompanied them in the wilderness. So the same promise that we have today, that Christ is with us always, even till the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20, is the, the same Christ who is with them, with Israel, leading her, guiding her, protecting her, all the way to the promised land. Children, boys and girls, I wonder if you've ever heard the phrase, out of the frying pan into the fire. That phrase, out of the frying pan, means that you're taken from a bad situation into the fire where you go into a worse situation. When Israel was in Egypt, she was in a bad situation. She was in the frying pan. But now at the Red Sea, they are in the fire. They are at a worst situation. Pharaoh has cornered them and they have nowhere to go. His whole army is there and it's clear, either you will be my slaves again or I will kill you. I know it's easy to be hyperbolic, but I do think that this is the most, maybe, the most desperate situation in the entire book. But the most troubling thing about this particular situation is that the Lord led Israel into this trap. And this is the difficulty, dear congregation, of believing in a God who is sovereign, who does all things according to his will. If we deny God's sovereignty, then when troubles come in our life, we can say things like, well, God didn't want that. It was out of his control. But with a sovereign God, we can never say that. Nothing is ever out of his control because he does according to his will amongst the host of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God led Israel into this trial. And dear congregation, God does the same with us. His trials are by sovereign design. He doesn't do this haphazardly. He doesn't do this because he doesn't care about us. He does this because it has a purpose underneath of it that is far more wonderful than the heart of man could ever imagine. So let's look to it then. Our outline this morning is we're going to look at a secret fight, a strategic fight, and then a solitary fight. So let's look at a secret fight. When Israel left Egypt, they traveled from Ramses to Succoth, and then from Succoth to Etham, which is at the edge of the wilderness, and that's uh, chapter 13, verse 20. So look uh, now at this surprising turn of events. Look at verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. So 
Yahweh had them turn around and head back towards Egypt. They were going east to the promised land, and now he says, now go west back to Egypt, back towards Pharaoh, back to the house of slavery. The fire cloud that was functioning as their divine GPS was seemingly broken. Why in the world would God have them go backwards? That doesn't make sense at all. They were just freed from two centuries of slavery. Look at verse 3. Here's the reason why. Then the Lord told Moses, For Pharaoh, because Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Israel's whereabouts would be reported back to Pharaoh because the people at Migdal, that fortified city, would send the info to the palace. And God was aiming at this precise reaction from Pharaoh, this reasoning that was in his head. Oh, look, Israel is wandering in the land. They are perplexed. They are confused. He made Israel to appear weak and stupid. He was setting a trap. Calvin says here, God set a bait to catch the tyrant just as fish are hooked. Verse 4, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. Now here in chapter 14, out of the 19 times that it's mentioned that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. It's mentioned here three times, and so we need to spend a little bit of time unpacking this. Recall biblically that there are three types of hardening. There is natural hardness, which all sinners possess at birth due to Adam's fall, Ezekiel eleven nineteen. Secondly, there is voluntary hardness, which is when sinners choose to reject God's word, Psalm 95, 7, and 8. And then, thirdly, there's judicial hardness. And this is when God hardens the sinner's heart so that they further disobey him, bringing judgment upon themselves. The hardening here is judicial hardening, and it's the last time that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Because he's going to be destroyed. But here's the rub. And this is perfect for Reformation Month, isn't it? How can Pharaoh be judged if God is the one hardening his heart? The simplest answer is from the Puritan Thomas Manton. He just says this, man hardens his own heart and then God further hardens his heart as a just, just punishment for sin. I think that's totally true. But we know that there's a little bit more to that, isn't there? God is not reactive. Our God is not looking down from the heavens and saying, oh, oh, look, when he's going to do this, I'm going to do this. Or when she does this, then I'm going to do this. No, God is writing the story of history. He ordains everybody's choices and determines all. He's 100% sovereign, and yet 
man still chooses according to his desire. Theologians have called this idea uh, compatibilism. It's the idea that God causes and man causes, uh, but not in the same way. Westminster Confession of Faith 3.1 puts it like this. God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. However, the liberty of second causes is not taken away. Now, that's highfalutin theological talk, isn't it? But children, boys and girls, I know that you can get this idea of secondary causes. Who, who of you has ever made that most delicious meal, macaroni and cheese? There are multiple causes in macaroni and cheese. When you stir up the macaroni and cheese with a spoon, that spoon is called an instrumental cause. But you, as the cook, are the efficient cause. You're the main cause. You're the agent doing it. And so it is that you and the spoon are causing the macaroni to be cooked, but in different ways. And that's how it sort of is with God and man. God is the ultimate causer, and man is a secondary cause. Um, God caused Pharaoh to do exactly what he wanted him to do. And yet Pharaoh still mysteriously did exactly what Pharaoh wanted to do. And if you want proof for this, look at verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people, and they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? God sovereignly caused Pharaoh to let Israel go. We know this from earlier in the book, and yet... Pharaoh claims it's his own choice. He says, what is this that we have done? And if right now you're saying, oh, this is just way above my head, this baffles me, good. Um, good, it, it, it should baffle you because this is exactly what it means to be God. Um, Job 11, 7 and 9, can you solve the mysteries of God? Such knowledge is higher than the heavens. It's deeper than Sheol. It's broader than the earth. It's wider than the sea. God is not waiting for you to understand him in order for you to worship him. He says, this is who I am. Worship me. So then back to our narrative. Why did God bait Pharaoh? Why did he put the, the worm on the hook? Why did he harden his heart? Halfway through verse 4. So that I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. To get glory here, it's a verb. It's a kavad. In the Hebrew, it's, it means to be made heavy. It means to be made weighty. It means to be honored. So get this, God had Israel turn backwards into danger. He hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would pursue him for one reason, so that all would see and feel the infinite weightiness of God. And that brings us then to our first principle this morning. 
the Lord's secret behind our salvation is to make his glory known to all peoples. The Lord's secret behind our salvation is to make his glory known to all peoples. God is not satisfied with merely saving Israel. That is not his chief goal. If if Israel is his chief concern and not his own glory, then God is an idolater. So, uh, Isaiah 48, 11, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. He's saying, if I do something for another's sake, other than my own, then I'm profaning my own name. I'm giving my glory to that thing. Or Ezekiel 36, 22, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Here's a little key to understanding the book of Ezekiel. Whenever you see that phrase, I did it for my own namesake, it's synonymous for I did it for my glory. Psalm 106, 8, Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. This is the same theme that's repeated throughout the New Testament. I remember the first time that I saw the verse that I'm about to read to you. It blew every category that I had for what salvation means. Why did God send Jesus Christ into the world ultimately? Why did God forgive our sins ultimately? 1 John 2.12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. God forgave our sins for the glory of his name. Dear congregation, this is the absolute difference between man-centered religion and God-centered religion. Man-centered religion is concerned mainly with man how to be helpful to man, how to be practical to man. But God-centered religion is concerned with God, how to publish his name to the nations so that all peoples would glory and honor and love him. Man-centered religion is concerned with making man feel better, um, to to raise man's self-esteem. But God-centered religion is concerned with teaching men how to fear God, how to please God, how to order one's life around God's law word. Man-centered religion is the fast track to legalism, to liberalism, to compromise, to joyless despair. And God-centered religion gives men the power to sacrificially love their wives, to raise their children in covenant nurture, to uh, defy the tyrants, to be burned at the stake, to, to serve the saints. Dear congregation, don't you see that God leading Israel backwards is the most important lesson that we can learn in this book? Our salvation is not about us. It's about God. God sent Jesus into the world to put himself on display. This life is not about you. This life is not about me. And to help us to remember that, God often turns us backwards in life so that we could be shaken out of our lethargy and say, 
yeah, I had it wrong. Do you feel like you're going backwards, perhaps? Do you feel like, God, what are you doing right now? What are you doing in my life? And the answer is right here. He's doing whatever it takes, whatever it takes to bring himself glory so that you could see it. And loved ones, that's what your heart needs more than anything else. You will never, ever, ever be satisfied in this age or in the age to come if you don't get God. This is why the psalmist says, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is no one I desire besides you. My heart and flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's glorifying himself so that you could be eternally satisfied in him. That's our first principle. The the Lord's secret behind our salvation is to make his glory known by all peoples. Let's look secondly then at a strategic fight. The end of verse 4 tells us that Israel did what the Lord said to do. They turned back. They encamped in front of pi ha Hiroth, verse 3. And that word just means uh, the mouth of the mountains. So the mouth was where they made their entrance into this narrow way. And this mouth was the only exit. On their left and right flanks were Migdal, that Egyptian fortress city, and the impassable Red Sea. Behind them was a place called Baal Zephon. That was an Egyptian town, uh, which was regarded uh, as the abode of the Egyptian god Typhon. He was the evil demon of the Egyptians. So all these other gods that we have looked at in the book, they were the ones they worshipped. This was their devil. So what's the result of of this configuration? Well, Pharaoh nails it at the end of verse 3. He concludes, the wilderness has shut them in. Israel was surrounded by a castle, by a demon, and the sea. And there was only one exit. In verse 5, we find that Pharaoh and his court assembled after the report had been brought to them. Halfway through verse 5, we read, them saying to themselves, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? They did the math. If they no longer had a slave force, the Egyptians themselves would have to do the labor. But what we see here is the utter blindness of the reprobate heart. Was it, was it Egypt that voluntarily let Israel go? Is that how the story went? No, not at all. God sent 10 plagues upon them. He hammered them into dust and he forcibly ripped it from their hand. When their firstborn died, they were so terrified of the living God that they drove Israel out of the land. God extorted Israel out of their hands by the fear of death. But all of that is forgotten. Calvin says here that this is the stupidity of the wicked. 
This is what I love about reading old authors. They can say those things, and it shakes us out of our winsomeness, doesn't it? This is the stupidity of the wicked, that they only dread God's present hand and immediately forget all that they have seen. Verse 6. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. Pharaoh personally would accompany his army to meet Israel. Either they would be his slaves or they would be dead. And dear congregation, lest we forget our biblical theology, this right here is the story of the whole Bible. That the seed of the serpent is at enmity with the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. How does the story go? It's the same story. The serpent beguiled Eve. Cain killed Abel. The Nephilim corrupted all but Noah's family. Esau planned to murder Jacob. Uh, Saul, Goliath, and Absalom all sought David's life. Apostate Jerusalem and pagan Rome killed Jesus. All of the Bible is a footnote to Genesis 3.15. And this is simply another iteration of the same. So Pharaoh is coming out. What is he coming with? Verse 7. He took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. These chariots were the most advanced war tech of the day. Uh, the most advanced killing machines, plus trained swordsmen and archers riding them, plus all of their older tech. And even though Israel had a great multitude of people, this army would mow them down like grass. Verse 8 and 9. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pi Haharoth in front of Baal Zephon. So now the trap is sprung. Israel is surrounded. They have the demon city. They have the Red Sea. They have the fortified city, and they have the most powerful army on earth in front of them. And the dragon has them right where he wants them. And God planned it all. He commanded Moses to bring them there. He hardened Pharaoh's heart to guarantee this meeting. It was the Lord who orchestrated Israel's most desperate hour. And so that brings us to our our second principle then. The Lord's strategy behind our salvation is to make his winning seem impossible. The Lord's strategy behind our salvation is to make his winning seem impossible. God always stacks the deck against himself. Children, boys and girls, I wonder if you know what that phrase means, stacking the deck. It's an expression which means that when you're about to play cards, You manipulate the cards in the deck so that you always win. This is what God does. 
but he doesn't stack the deck in his favor. He stacks the deck in the favor of his enemy, and so the enemy looks like it's, he's going to win. He ordains the circumstances so that the enemy is in the most favorable position, so it looks impossible for God to win. And he always does this. This is all over the Bible. Think about Gideon. He's going to fight off the Midianites. He starts with 22,000 men, and God says, no, that's way too many. Get rid of 12,000 of them, 10,000 left. Okay, that's way too many. Go down to the stream, have them drink out of the river. All those who drink like dogs, you can keep those. That's 300. God made it humanly impossible for the Gideonites to beat them, uh, for, for Gideon and his men to beat the Midianites. Or think of Lazarus's resurrection. Uh, for those of you who've worked in EMS before, you know that you can revive a a patient, if their heart stops, maybe even after several minutes. God didn't wait. Jesus didn't wait four minutes. He didn't wait four hours. He waited four days until Lazarus's body was stinking with putrefaction. And then he said, okay, now, now I'll go. Or think about Elijah at the prophet of Mount Carmel. What did he do to the altar? He dug a trench around it. He poured water over it three times and so that it was impossible to start a fire. The only way that fire could be lit if it came from heaven. He made it humanly impossible for God to do his work. Dear congregation, this is God's strategy. This is what he does. So, so my question to you is, do you recognize it? Do you recognize that God will work in your life? This is how he works. I'm going to put everything in this person's way. I'm going to make it impossible for him to do or her to do what she needs to do. I'm going to make them despair of all human solution. Do you recognize that work? Are you in that type of hopeless circumstance? Are you in a predicament that there's no possible solution? Well, this morning, if you have not come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you definitely have been. There's no possible solution for your sin problem except for Christ alone. There is no name given under heaven by which men must be saved. The scripture tells us again and again that Jesus alone can save you. Your sins can be forgiven today if you trust in Christ. Scripture says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, for those of you who already belong to Christ, when you get saved, then, then it's your graduation party into all sorts of hopeless situations. This is precisely where Israel found herself, and, and it's exactly where God wanted her to be. Dear congregation, you are exactly where God wants you to be, exactly whenever you find yourself in a trial, whenever you find yourself with no solution. It's not an accident. It's divine design. And right here, you may ask, but why? Why does God do it like this? Why does he make the trials so severe? Some of you who are here, you remember that my oldest son, Josiah, 
almost died in the hospital five years ago. Um, he had an internal staph infection. Um, his blood was septic. We took him to the ICU. He was in the hospital for 10 days, had uh, surgery. Uh, it was absolutely terrifying. Um, he was in so much pain that he asked me in a moment of despair with tears in his eyes, Dad, why is this happening to me? And many of you are in moments like that right now. Why is this happening to me? I don't think any of us will escape that question. If you've not asked that question to God, then, then just wait five minutes. That trial, I think that trial shaped Josiah's heart probably more than all the catechism questions that we taught him. I would never go back on the catechism questions, but he learned, he learned that in a predicament that he couldn't solve, he learned something that he wouldn't have learned otherwise. He learned about the all-sufficiency of his Savior, that Jesus really is enough. Beloved, when it seems impossible for deliverance to come, this is precisely when God is most at work. Impossibility is his main strategy. It's, it's his fingerprints. He wants to teach you something that you simply cannot learn from, our good from your good times. I thank God for good times. But we do our best learning in adversity. God wants to teach you that my God will supply every one of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. God wants to teach you that he is faithful and that he will not let you be tempted above your ability, but will with the temptation make a way of escape so that you can bear it, 1 Corinthians 10.13. He wants to teach you that he is able to do far above all that you can ask or think according to the power that is at work within you, Ephesians 4.30. That's our second principle, that the Lord's strategy behind our salvation is to make his winning seem impossible. Let's look at our last point, a solitary fight. So how did Israel respond? Well, let's look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Let's stop there. They were not walking by faith, but by sight. They forgot everything, the, the 10 plagues, uh, the covenant promises, the, they forgot Joseph's bones. Um, at the end of verse 10, we see them crying out to the Lord. And the particular substance of this cry is seen in verse 11. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? This is wicked sarcasm. Clearly, there were enough graves in Egypt. They saw the Egyptians digging them as they left. 
This was accusation. They were calling Moses a fool of a man who had led them to their death. This was rebellion. The, the psalmist later in Psalm 106, 7 says that our fathers did not remember the abundance of your love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. This was rebellion. And they piled on more. Look at verse 12. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. One author calls this response here the psychology of slavery. Israel didn't just suffer from physical slavery. She had been psychologically enslaved. And, and here's the backwards part about it. Israel hated her physical slavery, but she loved her psychological slavery. This was insanity. They didn't want Yahweh, they wanted Pharaoh. It's like the woman who is getting beat up by her abusive boyfriend and another man steps in to protect her and she turns on the protector and starts hitting him. She hates getting beat, but she protects her abuser. Israel preferred Pharaoh. Though her physical slavery was miserable, she preferred life in Egypt to a life of faith in Yahweh. And shockingly, uh, Moses completely ignores this rebellion, at least in terms of rebuke. Look how he responds in verse 13. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Three commands. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. Stand quietly and passively. Three, see the salvation of the Lord. Watch what God will do. And notice Moses calls this salvation. We thought that we saw all of God's works of salvation when they came out of Egypt by the death of the Passover lamb. But that was only part one. That was atonement. This is part two. The death of Pharaoh, the destruction of their enemies is the necessary second part of salvation. Both must be present or there is no salvation. Our enemies must be put to death. And then Moses says these words, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. The critical idea here is not that God will fight. It's that he will fight alone. Alone, without the help of Israel. God is the only one in this story who, is, who wants and who is working for Israel's salvation. Pharaoh wants them back as slaves or dead. 
Israel wants to go back. Israel's kicking and and screaming against God. God alone is working for Israel's salvation. That brings us to our third principle this morning, that the Lord alone works our salvation. Man is no help at all. The Lord alone works our salvation. Man is no help at all. It's Reformation Month. The, the, the month where Luther nailed those 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg 500 plus years ago, it changed the shape of the world. He wrote a book during the Reformation called The Bondage of the Will. And he wrote in that book that the principal controversy between Rome and the Reformers is this issue between the will of man and the grace of God. Luther contended that man's will is in bondage to sin and that it cannot, indeed it will not ever come to saving faith in Jesus Christ by itself, ever. We're just like the Israelites. Our slavery to sin is psychological. We, we both love our sin, and we hate our sin. We're we're the woman getting beat by her drunk boyfriend, and whenever the Lord steps in to try to save us, we, we scratch at him, we turn on him, we attack him. We are those who say to the Lord, leave me alone so that I can serve the Egyptians. Man does not want God. God did not send Jesus into the world with with mankind openly embracing him and welcoming him. John 1.1, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. John 3.31-32, he who comes from heaven is above all, yet no one receives his testimony. John 19.14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Dear congregation, mankind is Israel at the Red Sea. We don't want to be saved. That's not our inclination. We we are fighting as humanity to stay in our slavery to sin. But what did God do? He fought for us. He fought for us. The Lord will fight for you. Paul's theology is while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. The Lord fought for us. And that for us bit, that for us language is the language of substitution. Think about the fight between David and Goliath. Israel on one side, the Philistines on the other. David fought for Israel, on behalf of Israel, in Israel's stead, while Goliath fought for the Philistines. Here, here Israel was supposed to fight against Egypt, but, Lord, but the Lord took her place and fought for her. Her congregation the Lord has already fought 
for you. You're here today, not because you willingly came to the Lord. You belong to Satan, and the Lord fought for you, and he canceled his, your record of debt against you by nailing it to the cross. You weren't willing to come to God. Your sinful passions were enslaving you, but Jesus fought for you, and he gave you the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, making you a new creation in Christ. You belong to death, but Jesus fought for you. And when he rose from the dead, he raised you up to life with him. What did we do to save ourselves? Nothing. What did we contribute? Only every form of resistance and every form of rebellion. We came into the kingdom kicking and screaming, and the Lord fought to subdue us. So then what is our charge this morning? What do we do with this? Well, verse 13 tells us, fear not, stand firm and see what, see the salvation of the Lord. Or the end of verse 14, you only have to be silent. And on one level, it's like, that's pretty easy. All I got to do is be quiet. All I got to do is stand still. But that precisely is the most difficult thing to do when you're in a trial, isn't it? Boys and girls, imagine if I were to give you an apple and I said, go stand at the back of the sanctuary, stand really, really still, put the apple on your head. I'm going to take out my Glock and I'm going to hit that apple with a bullet. How still do you think you'd be able to be? Being still in a trial is the most difficult thing. Being still and knowing that God is God. To be still when all is hopeless, to, to, when, when all look lost, when, when every human solution has dried up. But you know why you can be still? Because the Lord has already fought for you. The Lord is fighting for you. He's already defeated sin. He's already defeated Satan. He's already defeated death, and he's already defeated hell. Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. Quiet yourself. Be still and know that he is God. This is his strategy to bring glory to his name so you could be satisfied in him alone, so that you could see the sufficiency of your Savior and be swallowed up in victory. Beloved, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Let's pray. Father, so that's the challenge, that we would be still, that we would stand firm, that we would know that you are the Lord of hosts, that you will be glorified in the world, that you will be glorified among the nations.
Lord, help us to understand that these words were written for us, for our example. That we may not respond in our trials like Israel did, but that we may respond with a heart of faith, knowing that this is the way that you have designed our sanctification. So be pleased to give us the faith to be able to stand up under these trials. Lord, we know that we will absolutely act like Israel did in every trial if you are not working in us to to work and to will according to your good pleasure. So we pray for that help in Jesus' name. Amen.